If you got your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 5. We're going to begin in Acts 5 and verse 12 is where we're going to start at today. The message today is simply entitled, No Casual Christians Here. Casual Christianity is something that has been going on for some time, and often it is misinterpreted as to what that means. Oftentimes people believe that casual Christianity has to do with where one goes to attend service, that if you go and become a casual Christian, you begin to dress down. You don't wear the suit, or they don't really have formal worship. They can just simply sit there and enjoy the worship that's going on. And many people have mistaken that for casual Christianity. But the truth is, is there are many casual Christians in today's church. Jerry was a typical American Christian. He attended church every Sunday morning. Every time the doors were open on Sunday morning, he was there because that's how he had been raised. Jerry had been invited to Sunday school by several teachers, and every now and then he would find himself going into Sunday school, but it all depended on if he woke up in time or if the paper wasn't more interesting or if SportsCenter wasn't talking about his favorite team. Jerry would actually come and sit in service, and as the offering plate was passed, he would throw in a $20 bill, and then if he was feeling generous that day, he might throw in two. He was one of those that would love to serve in the church, but found his favorite ministry was to serve whenever there was food at church, and the reason being is he didn't have to stay through the whole sermon, and he could make his plate first. (laughs) Jerry is your typical American Christian. Jerry also found himself when he was at work that there would be conversations that were going on, and they loved to talk about their favorite teams. And Jerry was very much aware of sports. But if ever a political topic showed up, such as pro-life or pro-choice, or uh, whether they believed in capital punishment or not, Jerry would simply nod in agreement with whoever was talking to him, but never really picking a side because Jerry didn't like to argue. He loved to go into work and do his job and make things happen. He, was, he loved to be nice to people, but he never liked to pick a side. He never liked to cause any problems. He was just your typical American worker, just a typical man who loved to do his job and never cause any problems. Love on everybody, but never create controversy. He loved to ride the middle of the line. Jerry towed the line. In fact, he liked to have friends on both sides. He was never confrontational and he was never pushy. He liked knowing that he was going to heaven and thought everybody should figure that out on their own. Jerry was just fine taking the casual route, even if his pastor told him he was lukewarm. Jerry was your typical American Christian. We live in a day and age where casual Christianity is just the norm. In fact, as, we, as we're going to find out, in fact, two-thirds of Americans are considered to be casual Christians. Now, that's kind of scary if you think about it. George Barna wrote a book about this, and here's what he said. He said, can you describe the casual Christian as a spiritually middle-of-the-road, perhaps even ambivalent about their faith? Why then are they so important to this nation's future? Barna says this, each of the seven tribes is important to our nation's future because they include millions of American citizens. The casual Christian tribe is especially significant because it represents a huge majority of the nation's population, two out of every three adults. 
This particular tribe is comprised of significant proportions of minimally active born-again Christians and moderately active but theologically nominal Christians. If a catalyst were added to this mix to deepen this tribe's integration of faith and lifestyle or even to simply create a more extensive sense of community and purpose within the tribe, unprecedented changes could occur question what have you found to appeal uh, to be the appeal of casual christianity as opposed to what draws people to the captive christian that is the tribe that is more fervent about their faith barna says casual christianity is faith in moderation it allows them to feel religious without having to prioritize their faith christianity is a low risk predictable proposition for this tribe providing a faith perspective that is not demanding A casual Christian can be all the things that they esteem, a nice human being, a family person, religious, an exemplary citizen, a reliable employee, and never have to publicly defend or represent difficult moral or social positions or even lose much sleep over their private choices as long as they mean well and generally do their best. From their perspective, their brand of faith practice is genuine, realistic, and practical. To them, casual Christianity is the best of all worlds. It encourages them to be a better person than if they had been irreligious, yet it is not a faith into which they feel compelled to heavily invest themselves. Man, when I read that, I thought, that's it. That's where America is. We have created a brand of casual Christianity where you can or cannot do and you, you can think or cannot think or you can study or not study. As long as you claim to know Jesus, you're good. What scares me is that Jesus understood this even in his own time in Matthew 7 when he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Casual Christianity, if I'm honest, is no Christianity at all. Because if you're not all in, you're not in at all. You got to think about this. We've been talking about in the book of Acts a growing church, and it is growing exponentially. God is blessing and God is moving in mighty ways in the Jerusalem church. And I promise you, there weren't casual Christians available during this time. And we're going to see that today that there couldn't be casual Christianity, that they had to be one way or the other. We live in a day and age, and a lot of people say, well, yeah, John even talked about it in the book of Revelation. We live in a day and age of lukewarm Christians. What we need to realize is what Jesus says about the lukewarm Christian. He wants to spew them out of his mouth. I promise you that doesn't mean he accepts it. We need genuine, captive, faithful Christians today. Look with me today and we're going to look at two insights into the growing church The first one we're going to look at is the church had power. Look at me in verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. There was power in the early church, massive power. Now, remember, we talked about it in Acts 4.33, where that power came from. 
It came from two things. One, it came from the power of the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what they had prayed for when they prayed for God to give them boldness. God give us the boldness to proclaim the gospel, and the Holy Spirit came on them and filled them. Now understand, they already had the Holy Spirit. The difference was is they had to be filled with the Spirit. You and I need to be filled with the Spirit every day. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You have him. He's available to you. The problem is, as many of us quench the Holy Spirit, we grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't listen to the Holy Spirit, but they were filled with him. And every day, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, we ought to be filled and keep on being filled up with the Holy Spirit. But not only did they have power because they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they had power because they preached the power of the gospel. There is power in the message of Jesus Christ. There is power in the gospel message and it comes for what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. And so when we look at this, there was great power in the church and God was doing great things in and through them. It says, through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. I mean, as we're going to see in just a moment, and we already read it, just great things were happening. Healing was taking place. People's lives were being turned upside down. But verse 13 is a unique verse, and it says this, Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Why would they not dare join them? We know the church was still growing, because when you read verse 14, look at what it says, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. So what does it mean that none of the rest dared join them? In other words, he's talking about the casual Christians. They didn't want to step all the way in. They esteemed them. They liked them. They liked what they stood for. But to be putting both feet in was just a little too torturous for them. They weren't wanting to be affiliated with them. They liked the mindset of just being on the outside, being in just enough. You see, the problem was is they didn't like what had happened earlier, what we preached on or talked about last week, and that was the church discipline that occurred. They didn't like what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. You think about that. If God struck you down based on your sin because you lied in church, how many of you would be here? Now you can't be Baptist. Don't raise your hand. You think about it. It's the truth. We would be in grave trouble if God really disciplined like that. If God took us to the woodshed every time we messed up, it might change who we are. But we do have a gracious, merciful God. But the church was called to go to them, to deal with that problem, to help them work through the solution. And so they went to Ananias. Peter found out they sinned. Peter went to him. Peter dealt with the sin. And that was the issue. Peter brought about church discipline right there in the beginning. So they didn't mind being outside the church because as long as they were outside the church, they didn't have to worry about Peter confronting them. They didn't have to worry about the church coming after them. But even with that kind of mindset, believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Isn't it amazing? The book of Acts has already told us there were 3,000 men, 5,000 men. Now it's multitudes of men and women. They can't keep count. God is blessing and God is moving in such a mighty way. Can you imagine they couldn't keep count? Now evangelistically speaking, they could have said, well, there's 15,000 now. There's 20,000 now. But the problem was they didn't want to guess at a number. They just said multitudes. Why? Because they were daily added to the church. God was moving in great power at this time. Now, here's the thing. If they're being added to the church daily, you realize that means it wasn't just going on during church services. It was happening every day where they worked, 
in their homes, right there with their family, right there with their friends, right there with their coworkers, right there with the people buying and selling the goods. It happened right there. That is the only way. I'm here to tell you that's the only way the church will grow today as well. It needs to be happening daily. But look at verse 15. This is unique. They brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. That is one of the most unusual things to think about. They thought that there was such power in Peter because of what they had seen happen to the lame man and other expressions that just the shadow, all they were hoping for is just the shadow to touch them. Well, do you remember a woman who had an issue of blood? And all she thought was, if I could just grab the hem of his garment. They had such faith. The problem was, is their faith was in Peter. Peter was always pointing them to Jesus. Peter never took credit for himself. But they believed that God would work in and through Peter. And it says, and also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities of Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Why were they healed? Because God wanted to speak to them. God was meeting their physical needs in order to bring them to their spiritual needs. Our physical needs. It's good for us to be able to do social things out in our community. It is good for us to go out there and meet people's physical needs, but only if the gospel is attached to it. If we're just doing social ministry, we are wasting our time. There must always be a presentation of the gospel when it comes to meeting people's needs. It's that simple. There was great power in the church. Number two, we see the church was persecuted. Look at verse 17. And then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Now, and mind you, they didn't like the message, so what did they do? They had them arrested. They did what they could do. They wanted to remove them off the streets. They wanted to stop the message spreading. They wanted to stop the teaching that they were causing. They wanted to stop whatever momentum that the church had at that time. They wanted to put a stop to everything that was going on. They've already been arrested once. This is number two. Mind you, this is the second time they've been arrested for preaching the gospel. The second time they've been thrown in jail. Now understand, it's not like the jails we have today. It's nothing like that. They didn't get three square meals. They didn't have cable television. They didn't have a weight room. They didn't get time out in the yard. No, what was is they were shackled inside of a cell with nothing and no food. And unless people brought them food, they starved to death in prison. So this was no easy task that they had been given. This was a very difficult place that they had been put under. And they were told to stop preaching the gospel. Now, what's amazing is, is God decides, you know what? I don't want to keep them in prison. And so he sends his angel. And if you don't believe in angels, well, I'm sorry, you don't believe in angels. But an angel was sent down there who opened up the door, allowed them to walk out. And then he gives them this instruction. I want you to go back into the temple and I want you to keep on preaching. Now, if these were some casual Christians, they would go, Lord, that's twice. I've been thrown in jail. I'm not going for strike three. 
I'm not willing to step out in faith. I know you've released me from prison, but I got another place I got to go. They could have been like Jonah, found a ship to another land, run away from God, and never had to deal with it. But that's not the heart they had. They weren't going to be casual. They weren't going to give up. They were excited that God had freed them and given them another chance to preach. Go into the temple and preach. And what did they do? They went into the temple the very next day. In other words, it's kind of like, come on, arrest me again. Bring it on. I'll take it a fourth time, fifth time. How many ever times you need to do it? I'm going to keep on preaching the word of God. But they sent for him. And look at what happens when they sent for him. Verse 22. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. We got a problem. We arrested those guys. They're not there. Now, typically what would happen is, is if you had lost the prisoners that had been given to you, whatever sentence was placed upon them is what was placed upon you. That's typically how it went. If they escaped, then that meant you stood in their place and you were imprisoned yourself. So in this situation, they're wondering what the outcome is going to be. And I believe for two reasons. The first reason I believe they're wondering what the outcome will be is they are released. And so people will think that we release them and that we are okay with their message. If they're out there and they're still preaching, it's going to sound like we're okay with it because we've already arrested them twice and yet they're out yet again. We did nothing to them. The outcome could be grave. It could be problematic for us because these guys aren't going to quit. And so their release meant we might be okay with them. Or the second reason they're worried about the outcome is somebody on the inside let them out. The guards are still there. The doors are still locked. The only way it could have happened is if somebody let them out, if somebody paid off the guards, if somebody made a way. So either they had an internal problem or they had a spiritual problem. Well, let me tell you something. If I was one of those prison guards and I had been keeping watch over those men and I find out the next morning they're gone and I'm the one holding the keys and I find out they've escaped and I find out an angel let them out, I might be asking them how I can know who knows the angels. There's a, bit, there's a good question that they've got going on right there. But these men, they were more worried about the outcome. They weren't concerned about the truth. They were only concerned about what might happen to them. So in verse 25, it says, So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Amen. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. Now, I'm going to tell you there's two reasons why it was without, without violence. One, they were afraid of the people. But number two, the apostles had to say, you know, we're willing to go back to jail. Let's go. They didn't fight them. They weren't fearful. They weren't afraid to speak up and tell the truth. They looked forward to having another opportunity in front of the Sadducees to share the gospel with them. Can I tell you something? Some of the most meanest and vilest people, you ought to look forward to sharing the gospel with them. I've talked to some people that were so stagnant and so stone-faced, they wanted nothing to do with the gospel. But all I could think to myself is, Holy Spirit, you can change their heart. You can take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh, according to the book of Ezekiel. You can change a heart. You can help them, that seed, to fall on good ground and not just stony ground. You can change their heart. I'm just going to take every opportunity you give me to share the gospel because somebody needs to hear it. They went. It says, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, 
Did we not strictly command you not to teach in, his name, in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and tend to bring this man's blood on us. This is really unique when you think about it. The answer is yes, you did command us not to. In fact, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 18, the last time they had been arrested, they said, don't preach anymore in this name. It's amazing they can't say don't preach anymore about Jesus. They don't even want to say his name. Don't preach anymore in this name. Oh, what name's that? Jesus. They didn't like to hear the name. Why? Because it brought back memories of what they did to him. The sham trial that they put him through. The debacle that they went through when they put him on the cross. The the escape as they could see it, what happened in the tomb because the body was no longer there. They saw all of these things taking place and they're like, we don't even want to hear about this guy anymore. They were upset. They said this, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. You're holding us guilty. Well, let me tell you something. Peter never ever shied away from telling you who was guilty when it came to the crucifixion. Listen, if you will, Acts chapter 2, 22 to 24, his first sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Go over to chapter 3, verses 13 and 15. Peter preaching his second sermon. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One, the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Acts 4, as they stood before the Sanhedrin, verses 9 to 12. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter never lightened the gospel. He never lightened the mandate. In other words, if Peter were to preach it to us today, he would simply say this, it is all your fault. All of us are at fault for putting Jesus on the cross. Yes, they crucified him. You may say, I wasn't there when they crucified him, but it was your sin that put him on the cross. You say, I didn't have the hammer and the nail. I didn't knock his hands and knock his legs into the cross. I didn't do that. Yes, but it was your sin that held him on the cross. You got to understand, it was by the predetermined plan of God, knowing our sinfulness that put him on the cross. But praise God, that wasn't the end of the story. He proclaimed it again and again and again. You crucified him, you killed him, but God raised him up. Peter never shied away. You tend to put that guy's blood on our hands. Let me tell you something. Every one of us have his blood on our hands. But my question for you is, is his blood covering you? Not just on your hands. 
Is it covering you? Because it's by the righteousness of Christ that we are robed. It is through his death, burial, and resurrection that we can receive the righteousness of Christ by putting our faith in him. By grace, he has saved us, and we receive the righteousness of Christ. I don't want to just have my hands ringing with his blood because of my sin. I want to have his blood covering me. Why? Because then I have the righteousness of Christ so that one day when I stand before God, he doesn't see me guilty. What he sees me is innocent as his son. Peter never shied away. He preached with great passion, great fervor, and they're like, we don't like it. But I love it because Peter was given another chance to speak to them because in verse 29 it says this, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. You flip over one page to Acts 4.19, and Peter says this, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Peter said, I ain't changing. I already told you who I'm listening to. I already told you whose power I'm under. I already told you whose authority I'm going to follow. I already told you, you can tell me not to preach in the name, but I'm going to preach in the name, and you can't stop it. The only way it could have been stopped was to take his life. And then guess what? It would have been passed on. And somebody else would have taken up the mantle and carried it on. You see, that's what happened in the early church time and time and time again. But Peter goes on. He said, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Isn't it amazing that Peter doesn't just stop there? He says, he raised him up. And he says, you know what? I, I think one day I'm going to go too. I think Peter was inferring that right here. He said, you can take my life, but I won't stay dead. I won't stay in the ground. God raised up Jesus, and guess what? He's going to raise me up too, because Peter would later preach that. He's going to raise me up too. He says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has highly exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He said, you tried to dishonor him, and God has honored him. You tried to put him down, and God has lifted him up. You tried to take away his place, and God has put him in his place. He is seated at the right hand. You can look up there right now, and I can tell you where he is. He is seated in the seat of honor. And guess what he's doing? He is giving repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You know what Peter just proclaimed to those people sitting right there in front of him? You too can repent. You were the ones that killed him, and you can repent. There may have been a guy there that was standing there at the crucifixion very easily because the Sadducees were there mocking him. The high priest was there mocking him. They were right there on the scene. And here is the apostle looking at them going, repentance is for Israel. Can I tell you something today? If your hands are ringing with the blood of Jesus Christ, repentance is available for you. And here's the great thing about it. He doesn't just stop with repentance because he says this at the end. He says, repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. If you repent, God will forgive. If you repent, God will forgive. That is his vow to us. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. You know what Peter's saying there? If you had the Holy Spirit, you'd know it too. If you had what we had, you'd believe it too. If you had the power that we have, you would know what took place. And you would know he's risen. Peter just laid it on the line. He never backed off. But look at how they respond in verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill him. You remember when Lazarus had been raised up from the dead and it sparked conversation? 
And when he had been raised from the dead, what did they say? We need to kill him. We need to put him down. It just amazes me. The very first thought that comes into their minds is we got to finish this. We got to put it off. We got to cut it. We got to draw it asunder. We've got to put the end and put the brakes on this thing. We need to kill them. Here's the thing if they had killed the 12 apostles, somebody else would have picked it up. The gospel was never going to die, no matter how hard they tried. But look at what happens. One man speaks up, verse 34. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Now, this is probably the very one who taught Paul. It says, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Now, he brings up two cases. The first one, we really don't know anything about. We don't know who this guy is. There were many people with the same name, many people that had revolted against the people of Israel. But the second guy, Judas, we know his story. It happened around 6 or 7 AD. Judas of Galilee, he was a guy who revolted against Quirinius when he decided to take a census to retax the people. Every time a census was taken, more taxes were taken. And so he revolted against that. He was tired of being taxed above and beyond what he thought he should be taxed. So he led a group of 400 men to stand up and revolt against the government. Well, it was put down. That's interesting because Gamaliel says that it put down the whole thing. But the truth is it actually started the sect uh, it actually started the sect that we often know of as the Zealots. And one of Jesus' own disciples, Simon the Zealot. And those were ones who counteracted against the government that would actually be terrorists in a way. And they went against the government. So here's the thing. His purpose was this. Let it go. And look at how he says this. And this is not, I want you to understand, this is not good theology at all. Verse 38. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. I'm going to tell you, that's bad theology. All right? Because there have been a lot of things that man has created that God has let go. There are many other false religions out there that have been created that have just continued to thrive. This was just a man who was just wanting to stop what was going on at that time. He believed he was teaching what was best. He believed what was going to happen was going to be just fine. He said, but we don't want to. The main thing was, I believe, is in verse 39. He said, we don't want to be found fighting against God. We don't want to stand against God. Let me tell you something. The last person you want to go against is somebody has God on their side. You don't ever want to team up against God. You will lose. I love it, Elijah. Elijah faced 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. A lot of people forget he faced actually 850 prophets, if you read it correctly. He faced up against all those prophets. He said, I am the only one left alone. And yet he won. Why? Because when you have God, you're in the majority. You don't mess with those who are in touch with God, especially when you're not. And in this situation, here is Peter saying, we've got to obey God. We've got to follow God. But this guy's going, you know what? You don't want to stand against those who are on God's side. Gamaliel did have one thing right, just not all of it. And look at verse 40, though. And they agreed with them. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Isn't it amazing 
This time they took it a step further. They didn't just warn them, they actually beat them. More than likely, this is exactly what they would do. It's called a Jewish flogging, and they would beat them 39 lashes, 40 minus 1, so that they didn't break the mark that God had given to them. Each one of these could have died from the flogging that they received. They went through it, and what's amazing is, look at verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I don't know about you. I never walked out of my parents' bedroom after a whipping going, Hallelujah, I deserved it. (laughs) These men walked out praising God, thanking God that they could be persecuted for the cause of Christ. Can you imagine? They rejoice. What would make somebody rejoice over persecution? Knowing that they are serving their master. Knowing that they are serving the one who took a far greater beating than they did. They willingly accepted the persecution. The Bible tells us numerous times in Scripture that we need to be willing to accept persecution, to accept difficulties in our life. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Peter was the main one who wrote about this of all people. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20, Peter says this, For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults if you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Peter also says in chapter 3 and verse 17, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. First Peter 4, 13 and 14, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified peter three different times said suffer for the cause of christ why because jesus had even taught them blessed are those who are persecuted blessed are those who are persecuted matthew 5 in the beatitudes for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven Persecution is something that the early church had to understand, something that the early church had to deal with. And because of persecution, there were no casual Christians. There was no chance for them to sit on the sidelines and say, you know what, it's okay, you guys can suffer for the cause of Christ, but I'll just stay over here. You know what, guys, you you can display all the power and you can do all the good and you can help all those people, but I'm going to stay over here. Casual Christianity wasn't something they adhered to it wasn't something they followed it wasn't even something they talked about because look at verse 42 and daily daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ there was nothing that was going to stop them Let me explain something to you if you truly are a Christian. There is nothing that should stop you from telling others about Jesus. Nothing. You see, these men didn't even allow persecution. They didn't allow the hatred of others. They didn't allow all the difficulties they faced to keep them from sharing the gospel. They continuously shared with others. It says in the temple, which we would attribute to the church, 
and in every house. You know, at the beginning of the year, we asked you to be praying for your neighbors that were around you, to get to know them, to share the gospel with them. I hope you're still doing it because the gospel needs to go to every home in Wilson County. We need to be sharing with every neighbor, every coworker, every friend, every family member. They need to know about this gracious Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to ask one question as we wrap it up today. How casual is your faith? How casual is your faith? If every Christian went to church like you do, served like you do, shared the gospel like you do, where would the church be? How casual is your faith?